0: The Grendel's Shadow, the sci-fi debut from Andrew Maine, is now available on eBook and Amazon's Kindle Store. When an unknown animal starts killing off settlers on a backwater planet run on coal and steam power, there's only one person who can help stop the slaughter. T.R. Westwood, a distinguished professor of biology and the galaxy's greatest hunter. Rocks, spears, shotguns, or cannons, he'll use whatever's allowed to get the job done. It's a fast-paced steampunk horror sci-fi western adventure written by Andrew Maine is available right now on ebook in Amazon's Kindle store. Also available on the Kindle app on your iPhone or iPad. Keep listening to the end of this podcast and you'll hear the prologue as well as part of the first chapter and audiobook presentation for free. Then go pick up Andrew Maine's The Grendel's Shadow for only 99 cents. Take your favorite celebrity, find out if they're dead. That's what I'm challenging you to do. Yes, you, it's me, Justin Robert Young, giving you the Ghost Vision Viewer Challenge. All you gotta do is get on Wikipedia and find out if the person that was in that old movie you like is still alive. Then go into the iTunes App Store and buy the Ghost Vision Viewer for only 99 cents. Why, it's got a radar, imager, word generator, PK detector, arrow, a yes or no, and unlike EMF and EVP detectors, it's not prone toward false positives and user interference errors. So you can figure out if that lady from Harold and Maude is talking to you. You know, there's no credible evidence that contacting the ghost people have ever happened. All right? But if it is, it's going to be done using the Ghost Vision Viewer. Mark my words, available for only 99 cents on the App Store. Bandwidth for the Weird Things podcast provided by Wired Tree. For sites of any size and world class customer service, head on over to wiredtree.com.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Weird Things Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Mayne, joined by my fellow host, Is. <laughs> Mr. Brian Brushwood. Today! Mr. Justin <laughs> Robert Young.
0: Let by an Andrews book. <laughs> All it's right. our new song we were singing. Everybody. It's
2: totally copyright free because we can't sing it on tune. <laughs>
0: yes
1: <laughs> uh let's just say it was a, a pretty good uh beat for beat uh version of that song so i think we captured the spirit of the oh original. totally i had tears coming down my eyes i was pumping <laughs> my fists in the air I was, I was, I was, uh... exactly
0: it was it was it was a whole new diamond club just <laughs> a few Neal minutes diamond
1: ago club. so uh you know for uh those of you that didn't get the chance to uh find out what happened before but uh uh Brian and Justin discovered a whole new level of insufferability with me as I was meticulously checking back on Amazon to see where the book was ranking. So,
0: well, what 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 book for people who yeah, might not there, be there
2: might aware. be people who don't realize that you. I, I
0: don't. I don't think we talked about it on the last podcast.
2: Are people who skipped ahead of the
1: the advertisement we're going to put at the front of this podcast. All right. Yes. <laughs> uh, I have a a new book. It is a, it's available in digital format right now. There's going to be a print version to come. It's available right now for the Kindle, which means if you have a Kindle or you have an iPad or an iPhone or just a desktop computer or laptop, you can load the Kindle application on there and you can get it. It's on Amazon and the book is 99 cents. It's called The Grindel's Shadow. It's my uh, sci-fi steampunk post-singularity western adventure story.
0: And l- let me just say cuz I was talking with a few of uh, you know, our, our you know, people who are really good fans of the show and awesome people earlier today and uh vincent 404 who we all know and love you know was like hey i mean you mentioned steampunk like how steampunk is steampunk and it's not blimps and goggles it's you no. know, it's it's it's, it's not it's,
2: goth meets brown steampunk
0: no 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 it, it's it's very uh you know if you're if you kind of like the general idea of steampunk but you don't want to get into the Crazy Victorian brass bustier, you know, aesthetic. Then this will be up your alley.
1: Yeah, let me let me qualify okay. the steampunk part. The idea is that it's it's a. I wanted to write stories about somebody in the future and in kind of in a post singularity world or universe where they would be put into environments where they didn't have all that technology. And so the the protagonist, this T R Westwood. He gets sent into planets where you've got people who are living in what you know would be considered a primitive lifestyle. Maybe they're living at a 19th century level of technology because of some sort of religious or some sort of aesthetic view that they have. And, and that's kind of, a, it's, it's a pretty plausible thing if you start to look at how a lot of splinter communities and utopian communities start. And it certainly makes sense in the greater backdrop of the story. But I just wanted to tell adventure stories in the far future where you weren't wondering, well, why doesn't the robot come in and fix it? You know, why doesn't he use a laser? So that's sort of, you know, in this in this story it takes place in a in a place that's arrested in a 19th century level of technology.
0: So there there is a steampunk aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Uh I would I would certainly say that in terms of the tones of the book, uh two of which are very 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 much on display in the teaser that we have at the end of this podcast, uh you know, our horror, you know, uh like like Andrew mentioned that the post singularity sci-fi and to me, the overwhelming element of the book is is kind of a, a Western oh, yeah. story. So
1: you don't you don't really need to particularly care about singularity or steampunk or whatever. I mean, all of that was just my way to say how can I tell a sci-fi adventure story that felt more like a classic sci-fi story and wasn't just buried down in technology and all sorts of weird terms and things like that. you know. Just the, promise
2: the, me this wasn't like a Tim Ferriss design, you know, like, well, these were the AdWords that got the biggest oh, response. Oh, so, no,
1: ab- no, Brian, absolutely not. Absolutely not. This was this was just a, a story that it was the kind of story I always loved to read when I was a kid. It was very much, but as a guy who's read so much science fiction, like a lot of writers out there, and knowing if you're trying to write something that takes place a thousand years from now, and you want to have a monster, and you want to have just an adventure sort of story, then you certainly need to explain, and as quickly as possible, why, if you think there's such a thing as a singularity or what have you, why these problems aren't much more readily solved. And so that was my way to say, well, the world is you know, kind of primitive, and here's why. But it right. doesn't dwell on that. It's just trying to be just a, a fun action story. But as Justin says, it feels very much like a Western.
0: And there's a very natural reason why the main character is named Justin Bieber, Rebecca Black, Sex, Sex, and High <laughs> Lady Gaga, <laughs> yes. Lady Gaga. Uh, so, so there we go. Uh, the yeah. Grendel Shadow. Pick it up on uh, Amazon, and uh, again, uh, listen to the end. Where uh, if you're like, "Hey, you know, I don't know. I want to, I want to know what this uh, whole thing's Before about." For I part like, with my yeah.
1: hard-earned ninety-nine cents.
0: Exactly ninety-nine cents, number one, and uh, we very, very, very much feel that if you take the Pepsi Challenge and listen to the prologue and, and the first. Uh, the first chapter, if that's up your alley, you will not be disappointed Yeah, spending your 99 See, if it's a Pepsi
2: challenge, that means there should be a Coke in there. So it's like you could either listen to that or you can listen to me reading off my laundry list. So and then you go. can decide which is better, which deserves your ninety nine. <laughs> We're gonna give
0: out Brian's phone number at the end. <laughs> you right. Call him uh, and ask him to read his. You're like, his, what are you up to? I'd be like,
2: well, I gotta drop Penelope off for you know dance <laughs> lessons, and then boring.
1: Going... Grendel's
0: Shadow's better.
1: <sighs> yeah. So by all means, listen to the end. Justin did this a kick ass job of reading the prologue and the the first part of the first chapter, which will give you sort of a taste for the story. But again, Justin did a great job of that. I'm, I'm like, man, I I want to download this
2: on Audible. Well, there we go. You're like whoever wrote this is a handsome genius who's very sexually attractive. <laughs> oh, I must though, well
0: and I don't know. We we're we're talking about it, and most likely we might uh, you know do something more with the audio stuff in the future, but we can save that for another podcast when we actually know exactly what we're going to do. Yeah,
1: right now, ebook. That's where it is. So, gentlemen, I don't know if you got the news today, but. Uh, Kind of kind of interesting sort of a uh, discovery was making the rounds and I uh talked about how when we were uh, staying over at Brian's or South by Southwest, uh which was which very, very nice of you to let us stay there, by the way, Brian. That was that was wasn't my idea. Yeah, I, I know. Um but I gotta it was say very kind. The house staff was very, very nice. That's I gotta my tell wife you, you're talking about.
2: I was I was I was <laughs> the a house little bit staff. <laughs> uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> um Anyhow, the uh, was like it was know, like you're not reading like these genetic modified science fiction novels and slip into the house chimp was delightful. That's my <laughs> wife. Sir. I was
1: I was going to start trying to describe like some of the tacky things Sylvester Stallone had at his house, but I won't even get into that. <laughs> so anyhow, um, your pet chimp only bit me once, which I was glad for. That's um, my wife. Oh, OK. Yes. Your, your children were very, very delightful. Those are my dogs. That was the screaming I heard locked behind the door. But a little note comes scribbled to come. Got pushed underneath there, but it was kind of like some VC Andrews stuff. I did, I just threw it away because out mm. of respect for you and Bonnie. Anyhow, Justin and I took a walk. We mentioned this before about how we actually found bones on the ground.
0: Yes, okay. we
1: did, and and I I threw out some sort of scenario in which we found you know our murdered clones or something like that. But you know the truth gets weird, ladies and gentlemen. There has been a recent discovery north of Austin and involving people who died under interesting circumstances and they've told us a little bit more about humanity and apparently you you've heard of the term clovis and pre-clovis for those of our listeners that don't know what that is whenever you want to talk about uh People who lived in America, indigenous Americans, what have you. Clovis was sort of the earliest civilization. That was what they called it was. And these were people who made it all the way down into the middle Americas. And so they talk about Clovis. And then there's the talk about maybe there were pre-Clovis civilizations.
2: And that's named after the location where they were found, Clovis, New Mexico, right?
1: Absolutely. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So anyhow, they found some bones in Texas, not too far away from where we were, that apparently go way before then and had a different were primitive level of technology. And this goes back, I'm going to pull up the date here and tell you what how far back it was, but I mean it's like we're looking at like 15, 16,000 years old.
0: So this is this is credible evidence for a pre-Clovis society, is what I'm taking from Yes,
1: you? yes it was. Yeah, very very credible and and a lot of scientists had already given up the idea that you know, Clovis was, you know, the, the earliest point. So, it's a site and text. They kind of
0: had enough of Clovis's garbage. Well, there was you know, enough about stuff being the first.
1: Yeah, the, so it's called the the Buttermilk Creek Complex, which just sounds yummy. And apparently, they found a number of artifacts, which you know said that there was a settlement before there. And 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 Brian, you know, when you go look at uh fifteen thousand five hundred year old artifacts, okay, out there in a floodplain. And and Brian, you're home right, right now, are you?
2: Re- real quick, uh, that's fifteen thousand. 000- Comma five hundred year old artifacts, or yes. they're fifteen thousand and five hundred years old. Like, am I looking at fifteen thousand artifacts that are five hundred no, years old? You're,
1: you're looking at fifteen thousand five hundred. Yes, I, they're, they're almost sixteen thousand years old. Okay, there we go. Okay, I just want to make sure I
2: got the right time <laughs> know, frame. I'm I with know. you. Okay, got gotcha. I know I said it was. I'm awkward. like, that's a lot of artifacts. I don't know that exactly. I'll get through them all.
0: We're drowning
1: in these <laughs> five hundred year old artifacts. Actually, they're eight hundred artifacts in total they found so
2: far. Okay, but 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 they're all almost 16,000 years old. Gotcha. Yes. Yeah. Yes. They, they they predate written history.
1: So the oldest Clovis site up until that point were about 13,000 years. So this is almost 3,000 years earlier. We're looking at a period from and you go, well, "What's 3,000 years?" Well, dude, 3,000 years ago, yeah, the, the Egyptians were still like, you know, top dog.
0: Yeah. That's I mean, it's amazing to be So we we were farting around over here. Somebody was.
1: Yeah, well. Probably not us,
0: us, but, you know,
1: somebody. The precursors to the Native Americans and, you know, groups before that. But, I mean, Brian, I want you to think about that. Right where you're sitting right now, okay, where your house is, your beautiful house is, beautiful wife, your kids, 15,000 years ago, 15,000 years ago, Brian, name a Name a civilization. I mean, you can't even name a civilization that was around back then, and there were people walking through, probably walking on the very ground right past where you
2: are right now. This, to me, is the greatest tragedy, is that we will never, like, before we started writing anything down or drawing pictures of buffalo or anything, we just have no direct evidence whatsoever of what they did. And, and in fact, I, I sit there and I fantasize, like, well, how could we possibly ever find out what happened and, uh, and I think about, there was, um, uh, are you familiar with the science fiction writer Pierce Anthony? Oh, yeah. Uh, I, he's most famous for, you know, the Xanth series of mm-hmm. fantasy novels and stuff. But he wrote something in the 60s called Macroscope that involves these people kind of warping, you know, folding space and jumping farther and farther out. And at one point, they turn a telescope back. And, uh, and I guess it's an optical telescope. But because mm-hmm. they've warped so far forward so far away from the earth they're able to look back in time and using this telescope look down at the earth and see the people uh you know phoenicians ancient phoenicians doing their business down there and i guess that's the only way we'll ever really know what happened on earth and it it breaks my heart that there's not only i mean it's it sucks bad (laughs) enough that we're gonna die not knowing what happens to the rest of the universe right it sucks that we're not going to solve half the mysteries that we want to know, but but we don't even get to know our true origins or past. We don't get to see early humanity before we started writing stuff down. That it just breaks my heart that there's so many unsolved mysteries, unsolvable mysteries.
1: I I, I agree, man. It is a it is sort of the tragedy the idea of how much human civilization happened. Most of human civilization happened before we could write things down, and what we have left from there was just what was orally transmitted. And you know, and you're right, like right now. I mean, Brian, where you're, you know, I'm trying to advise where you are right now, you're probably within, you know, a mile of
2: where people lived 10 15,000 years ago. Now, I assume they had campfires back then, which yep. tells me they probably had campfire stories, although they oh, were sure. probably too worried about dying of mysterious diseases <laughs> or being struck by lightning or. I mean, that's, Natural
0: predators. Right, and, or,
2: or war, or, you know, any of those things. But at some point, there was probably a ral- relaxed moment, which means some analog of the Weird Things podcast could have occurred, just like we did out in the backyard around my fire pit. We could have that same experience right here with our great <laughs> ancestors a bazillion years ago. How crazy is that? It's
0: awesome. Yeah.
1: And Imagine them 15... This is a thing when we talk about scale. So imagine people 15,000 years ago who, you know, looked... Like modern humans, sitting there, having a conversation. And what is the idea? What does fifteen thousand years mean to them? How could they how they could even conceive of what life would be like fifteen thousand years later?
2: I mean, I got nothing, man. Yeah. I got nothing on this. And I apologize. Well, I mean,
1: what can think about that? What can we? I mean, it's sitting here, you know, us chimps I mean, talking at the microphones. Is, is, is,
2: is that what is that what it boils down to? Are we too far apart? Like, so let's imagine. That you know a shaggier caveman Brian and a shaggier caveman Andrew and an exactly identical Justin Robert Young (laughs) are sitting around a campfire. Like, what would we say to them? I mean, is the Gulf too big? (laughs) Even if we could tackle this business, we think
1: about like you. You pull out a device like an iPhone. You don't even have to turn it on. Just the fact, the smooth glass, the metal trim, or any phone or any device, a ballpoint pen. How amazing something like that would look to them, but see, or like, maybe
2: they don't care. But like a ballpoint pen, they they won't even understand the context of a ballpoint pen. Oh no. They'll be like, "This is a sharp thingy," and you're like, "No, but it makes a line." And they're like, "So what?" And then but, you oh, explain, but these lines can be oh, used no, no, to represent no, no, no. symbols.
1: No, Brian, I don't even mean that. I meant just the manufacturing that goes into it. This is a this is a world where thing everything they handled, everything they have is made from rocks. It's made from bone. It's made from wood. And to show them a crafted thing, this this smooth thing that's got metal and all these other things on it that looks like, you know, is so far outside of their experience and to tell them, you know, I made this or we made these things, you know, that would seem pretty amazing. You know, you you go back a few thousand years and that wouldn't seem as impressive, but to somebody back then where, you know, spearheads and things like that didn't change for 50,000 years, I would think that alone would be amazing. But yeah, you know, the the idea of trying to explain written language or whatever, that's just too far out there.
2: Yeah, man. I don't, I don't know. Um, I mean, to be honest, I honestly feel like it'll be a little bit. It'll be a little bit like that scene from revenge of the nerds when all the chicks show up and we all just stare awkwardly at each other until someone pulls out some, Hooch or some Wonder Joints <laughs> or whatever, like that's the only way we're gonna be able okay. to communicate. We that's, guys.
0: that's your big, your big welcome wagon thing. <laughs> we like, make this, this trans, you know, this the like, like two hands we're stretching just gonna through time and one handshake. But really, it needs the social lubricant of spiked punch. I, I'm telling actually, you, actually,
2: it was it was Super Dube, but yeah, no, it was it was Super Joints. Yeah, no, yeah. Booger had him. Uh, yeah. But 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 yeah, dude, I I honestly think that I don't know that. I mean. You know, one of us just dances for them, and they're just like, "You got nothing." I mean, we could serve each other with
0: with our dance. Yeah, there skills. we go. Sure, <laughs> but I, th- I think we do way better. Do, do you like, think I'm not even not even lying?
2: Do Do you think that language evolved as quickly as it does now, where it's like whatever, however it is, our parents speak the younger generation feels like, well, we got to make up our own new words for everything and talk differently. You think that's how it was 15,000 years ago?
0: No. I think, you know, they had, like you said, they were way more preoccupied about a bunch of stuff other than, you know, whether it's
2: saying cool F you or dad. not cool
0: to say tubular, you know? <laughs> uh, you know, I, mean, I guess I think that uh, the... Spoken and written language. I mean, no matter what people I mean, people like to carp about it, but like, it's something that we spend a lot of time thinking about, and I would think of probably a disproportional amount than the large majority of human history.
1: I think a you know, a a thing that that kind of strikes me about that is is you look at how we how how thing is how, how humans are organized now. And you can sort of draw some lines. And one of the things that's been coming up more and more throughout a lot of the new anthropological discoveries is the most successful people tended to be people who lived by the the sea and who traded a lot with other people. The further inland people were and the more isolated they were, it seems that they adapted a little bit less as fast as other people. And so language didn't change very fast. And and we talk about this today when we talk about hill people and Every country has their own kind of hill people who are very, very sort of backwards. And you got to imagine this went all the way back. If if we were a couple of fishermen or a couple of traders who just walked around trading, we'd be exposed to a lot of stuff and we have pretty cosmopolitan ideas about things for that time space. But if we, you know, came upon people in our treks who very rarely ever saw strangers, you're going to find that, you know, not a whole lot probably changed in those villages over hundreds of years or thousands of years if they lived in villages at all.
0: So I mean, by that then. We are currently in a golden age of being exposed to other people. We are all oh, yeah. more fishermen than we ever have been in in, in human history, and we see that even uh, now with with these you know these these revolutions in oh, yeah. Libya and Syria and Egypt and everything that you know we are far more exposed. Like, you know there was the the thing that broke today about the or uh, over the last couple of days by the the woman in Libya who was uh, you know it was apparently raped by you know, these, these uh, forces by, you know, Gaddafi. And now she's an international news story where before that situation has probably happened thousands. I mean, it is, it is you know, mind-bogglingly mm-hmm. depressing to think of how regularly that's happened. But now we know just by the very fact that we can put her on a camera and it can be on Facebook and Twitter, we now know and that changes our behavior and that makes us think and speak and act differently every single day and increasingly more so you know, uh, by by, as, as Brian likes to say, an order of magnitude every single day. Yeah. I remember a simpler time, a time when we used to be men, when men used to fight women, and women used to raise dogs. I was raised in a bizarre foster home. But that's why I enjoy rickfoster.tumblr.com. Yes, it gives me all the updates I need on Rick Foster. Never again will I be without Rick Foster information. And nor should you. rickfoster.tumblr.com
1: And I guess the thing that I wonder is, we look back 15,000 years ago at the people that were walking around where Justin, or excuse me, where Brian lives, and then now we think 15,000 years
2: from now, where are we going to be? And I mean, I can't, I can't
0: like straight tards.
2: Okay. Yeah. So question, question, how, uh, 15,000 years. We, we talked last time about a major event about an asteroid, you know, uh, you, your, your Wyoming explodes or whatever. Um, <laughs> and, and we talked about the interconnectedness that we have thanks to the internet. And we wondered if, You know, would this be more like, you know, a burn on an arm that is a huge bummer and massively disruptive for the tissue that's there? But, you know, for the body of humanity in general, it is something that heals over time. Or is it the kind of thing that's utterly destructive and sets us back 10,000 years where we lose the ability to communicate and we're back to savages beating each other with rocks? Question. Over the next 15,000 years, do do we have... A massive, we will have disasters. We will have biological disasters. We'll have physical disasters. We'll have nuclear uh, accidents. We'll have war. But do we ever get to a point where we're not? Thanks, Cassandra. Do we ever have something that we're knocked back to a level where humanity wide we are pre, say, uh, 1000 BC levels?
0: Justin? I mean, it's it's. I'm gonna go ahead and say no. I don't I don't think so. I think that our our greatest defense against catastrophic failure like that is our interconnectivity, and that if if you know, depending on how far we are in the future, uh, considering how much we are all uh, interconnected, I think that it's it's harder. I mean, it's, it's an exponentially harder problem to knock us back to that level than, let's say, what happened in the Dark Ages. You know, because it's, you know, at that point you're dealing with, by and large, uh, especially compared to now, less interconnected, uh, you know, ecosystems and uh, economies and communication and, I mean, travel. So you know, so your
2: position is that is that we can't unknow the things that we've learned or, or at least we can't universally unknow them as a species. Individuals might have trouble with it, but, but because we've solved a certain base level of problems, there'll be a certain amount of knowledge, stuff like stuff that we could even grow on our own, like penicillin or whatever. It's like, we will, not even if we forget over the next hundred years, the recipe for penicillin we will know that there's some kind of fungus you could grow that makes bacteria go away.
0: Yes. Yes. And, and I mean, we've, we've seen how resilient that we can be when pressed. And, and I think if, if all of a sudden the ultimate, the, the threat against the human race itself, uh, you know, came upon us that, uh, you know, we'd, we'd get a, uh, you know, Bill Pullman to give a speech and we'd rally the, uh, rally the planes and blow up the alien spaceship. We you know, will not go Bennett's quietly style.
2: into the night. We will not no. go down without a fight.
0: <laughs> I think, uh, I mean, you know, between how fast you know we can, uh, and 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 how efficiently we can move people. Let's say if there's an element, or there's a portion of the earth that becomes uh in, inhabitable or or, or you, know, uh, you know injurious to its people. You know, we can we can uh treat things. I mean, we have we can have immediately the the greatest minds in their fields can be put to work faster and more efficiently uh, than they ever uh, would have been before. So I think there's it's going to be way harder to knock out all of those tools uh, to, to knock us back as far as that.
2: So, well, actually, before I say what I want to say, I want to hear Andrew's. Andrew, what do you say?
1: I think the thing that's most important isn't a particular tool. It isn't a particular piece of technology that sticks around unless I think the next, the next 40 or 50 years is going to be the most critical. If we make it past there, we're going to actually be a, Spacefaring
2: civilization. Yeah, but, yeah, and but, can, but, you, but you believe in the singularity. You think we're going to hit the singularity in that time, right?
1: Uh, I was just going to say that in the next 40 or 50 years, if we get to the point where we have enough technological advancement at the rate at which we're going now, we're not talking about AIs or nanotech or anything else like that, but just at a, a far enough point, we can be a, you know, an intersolar civilization. We can start to be living in other places besides Earth. So if a, if a comet takes out Earth, and there are going to be people on Mars, you know, if something takes out you know, Mars and there we're going to have other places. So I think if once we get to that point where we are be able to build civilizations that are, you know, ideally you want to be able to trade and intertrade, but are capable of being dependent upon only themselves, it certainly increases our odds. I mean, that's the thing that historically, there was points in time when there was you know, less than 100,000 Homo sapiens living on this planet within the last, you know, Probably two or three hundred thousand years, and you think about that—only a hundred thousand people. All right, you take the entire population of people that were wiped out in, you know, a, you know, the, the, you know, one of these major cataclysmic events. You know, the, the tsunami in uh, Indonesia before you know Japan got hit. Okay, the number of people that get wiped out in, you know, when Pompeii blew up or whatever. And if that had happened at another point in time when humanity was in a small point in time, there would be no people right now. Right. And so, but the fact that we have spread out because we have survived the odds, we have made it further out, our odds have gotten better, you know, as we live on almost, we live on every continent now. And that means that, you know, one disaster what strikes one place isn't going to affect someplace else. And, you know, we, we get a lot of horror stories about climate change. That's going to be the big one that's going to affect us. I, I you know, I, I think, you know, it happens slowly enough that we can adapt to it in really rich civilizations like people in the Netherlands and other places or Venice, whatever, can deal with climactic change that impacts their environment. And I think we can too. That thing doesn't scare me at all. What worries me is the big major, you know, the comet killer, or, you know, we brought up singularity, the 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 malevolent AI that decides it wants to annihilate us, which a lot of smart people, Bill Gates and others, actually think that, you know, that's as plausible of a risk as, you know, meteor hitting us.
2: Well, and I think I think it's right that they be afraid of it, but mm-hmm. I think it's their fear of it that will ensure that it never happens. Because everybody who knows enough about AI and understands the potential of what they're dealing with, uh, kind of like you know the whole threat of nuclear annihilation and nuclear winter, the mm-hmm. fact that all the people in a position to make the decision uh, know what they're playing with, and that's sort of what guarantees that that they don't tend to pull the trigger all at once with a bunch of nukes. So, li- listening... well, well, just let, just interrupt that for
1: a second. The problem is, is that.
2: Uh... Nukes don't
1: think for themselves,
2: right? Unless but they're but want. they're playing with fire. If if you if you are genuinely afraid of robots taking over the world, and you mm-hmm. happen to work on artificially intelligent robots, then you tend to be way more careful about programming safeguards than somebody who doesn't understand the threat of artificial intelligence taking ever, over.
1: Ever 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 met somebody who works with uh, emotionally disturbed children? Yeah, I have. Ever ever find out what their home life is like?
2: Oh, so I uh, So you're saying <laughs> like what? Like uh, like the people uh, guidance counselors have the worst kids.
0: <laughs>
2: hmm. I don't know. We'll see. Stop. But 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 the thought that popped into my mind was uh, Justin. Something about what Justin said for some reason, reason made me think of ants because mm-hmm. I, I probably would have twenty minutes ago said I do think we'll have some major reset. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I thought about like being a kid and you know how all kids are terribly cruel. And I remember stomping on ant piles and watching the ants immediately just walk out and you can't hear them shouting at you. They're just like, oh, well, <laughs> I guess our ant mound is totally hosed. But if,
0: but if they, if you could, what would they say? I
2: don't know. they be like, I mean, in my mind, the ants come out and they're like, ah, son of a gun. It looks like our ant mound got totally destroyed. <laughs> um, well, I guess it's time to rebuild the ant bound. And you come back and it's half rebuilt and you stomp on it again. And then the and then the ants are just what like
0: depressingly logical ants you have.
2: Uh, I'm like, telling you, you that's you, what, you, that's, you, what your,
0: that's what your ants your ants sound like characters in nineteen seventies comedies that are on depressants. No, dude They're it's like, well, oh bother.
2: That's the way they act though. They act. That's what <laughs> amazes me, is is they 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 never get depressed or turned off as far as I could tell. Cause no matter how many times you stop with their pile, they're like, well, I guess it's time to rebuild that part of the ant mound. And then meanwhile, they're carrying their babies around and you're just like, you're, you're an eight year old. You're like, "Ah, you ants. Um, I (laughs) will have to bleep that out. Uh, but the point is when, especially over the last decade, maybe it has something to do with becoming a grown up and having seen some, some messed up stuff in my lifetime. It's amazing to see how similar, mankind is when it comes to resilience in the face of natural disaster both in the in the you know i of course here in america we immediately think of 9 11 and how new yorkers watched a you know an abject declaration of war and many of them just went back to work because that's what we do uh they're they're resilient in the face of disaster same thing with the tsunami and all other forms of natural disasters earthquakes in haiti that kind of thing um that if 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 we could be as badass as ants, I think we're solid.
1: I Brian, I think we will. I think my 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 only caveat is that that really just that thing that goes beyond our comprehension, like your foot coming down where they have. You know, once you decide to get rid of them, you bring out the spray. The the. The ant killer, then they're really doomed. But I agree, I agree with you. I think the most important stuff isn't the technology; it's the ideas. And the most important ideas. The problem is, is that there is a fight for people to understand this, and there are arguments that are that surprise me. That are arguments to this day. You know, free trade. Free trade is an awesome thing. The more you trade with other people, the further away you trade from them. The more you expose yourself to new ideas, and new ideas are good. And the more you make yourself available to them and them available to you, the more you're able to be invested in these people and in what they do and not just trying to take their resources. And, you know, the three of us understand this, we get this, but you see trade protests and people like that who for some reason have this idea that it'd be easier for us to all get along if we didn't trade with each other.
2: Which is asinine.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Real real quick, uh, Andrew, just uh, to, to go back, two seconds I mean and I, I think I'm, I'm on the same page with you with why we would survive uh, I think my point is that uh, I believe it's the ideas but the technology is the proof that these ideas exist and and the fact that we've had this escalation is what makes me believe that we will continue to and that will be our our saving grace hey you want to find out how smart you are do you think you're just like the smartest guy on the planet how about you go ahead on over to uh, willtech.com.au slash shop slash accessories slash digital dash genius slash prod underscore six six one nine dot html. Or just go to willtech.com.au and search for digital genius. It's a, it's a game where you try to play Mensa puzzles. It made me feel stupid. But then again, I am stupid. You're probably not. Go find out how smart. You are playing the digital genius game.
1: Well, here's a here's a question from a French listener. His name's Arthur, and he wants to ask kind of along these lines a little bit. And we talk a bit about the singularity. And sometimes we get new people who come in and go, "What the hell are they talking about?" And then people who've heard us say it over again go, "Oh hell, they're talking about the singularity again." The idea is that technology accelerates. The development of technology accelerates. If you look at at which microchips and computer processing, a lot of other things are improved. It gets faster and faster. You're going to reach this point where technology will eventually drive its own development. Where you're going to have computers designing the next generation of computers, and they're going to get faster and smarter. You're going to have machines figuring out how to build better machines, and you reach this point after which it's really hard to conceive of what the future would be like because what we would think would be a thousand years from now would be ten years from then or whatever, and the economy doubles every week, than every day, and it's a crazy weird idea. But you know, the, to sum it up, you get super intelligent robots, people can upload their
2: minds to computers, and a lot of other ideas. Which I guess I you know, just stated simply at some point um success breeds so quickly that anything becomes possible instantly
1: well I mean they're within the laws of physics right you know it, but, yeah, I mean, it, you it,
2: can live forever you can look however you want you yeah. can have anything you want to have you could do whatever you want to do
1: yeah it, it, yeah exactly and so we got Arthur wants to know uh, he wants to know first when do I think it'll happen I have no idea and there might be reasons that it would never happen um but so I have no idea Tuesday oh, give,
0: give, give my- Tuesday
1: all right I wasn't supposed to tell people Tuesday okay <laughs> he then wants to know what would be the effect on the economy and lifestyle if nobody had to live a work to live a comfortable life? And you know, I thought about this the other day. I actually thought it would be fun to write an article about what would the economy be like? The economy be like in a post singularity civilization? And when I was writing the book, The Grendel's Shadow, one of the things that that is talked about not maybe there's only one or two sentences you would ever pick on to pick up to realize and sort of why people live in some of these places and in life is the way it is is thinking what would the economy be like, you know, in the future when you don't have scarcity. And we already see that to an extent right now. The reason people are getting heavier and heavier is because food has become much, much cheaper and we are still programmed to consume as much as we can. And, but as these things continue to, you know, be improved upon and, you know, scarcity gets minimized, you know, we have to deal with the problems of surplus. And some people go, oh, I don't know. You know, you, you think about it and we go, You know, why do we feel like we don't have money have enough money? But when you look around at all things that we have compared to what we had forty years ago, you know, the average family probably has two cars and four or five television sets and two and three computers and all these other things that forty years ago, the houses were smaller. You know, they had far fewer things. In a post-singularity civilization, these kind of material goods are, you know, gonna be you know, produce so cheaply you won't even think
2: about them. I so- totally, totally disagree. And I'll explain right. why. I, I don't want to interrupt. No, go few- ahead. No, no, go ahead. Please. The, the, the reason is, is because what will happen is as we become to a uh, constraint free economy, mm-hmm. we will rely heavier and heavier on artificial scarcity and we've seen it both with virtual goods and actual goods. First of all on virtual goods, you if you when you find yourself waiting in line on your Sony PlayStation to play virtual bowling uh for a you, you're waiting in line for rooms. They can make an infinite number of rooms. It's artificial scarcity, but there's something about the ritual of waiting and then it being your turn and you getting up and going that people like. Same thing in the economies for World of Warcraft. People spend Hours doing real world labor in order to build up virtual currency to buy fake objects in a world that doesn't exist. Yeah, but you're uh, talking they, well, and and that you're right. That's all virtual. That's all. No, gaming. no, no. That's
1: no, no, no. Those are monopolies. You're talking about you're talking about monopolies. Places where people have a monopoly on something. You know, right. if, if, I'm making I'm like, and, and and you're always, and there there absolutely is going to be. I'll get into my idea on those kind of, on, on where I think those kind of scarcities will come into play and examples of that that aren't virtual.
2: But, but let's, let's t- kick it over to real life. Here in our lifetimes, I have watched the transformation in my lifetime 25 years ago. It would be ridiculous for you to say, I want to take water, something that falls from the sky and is free, put it in a bottle, and charge more than gasoline for it. That would have been laughable. But in my lifetime, we've seen that we have reached such a level of of, of 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 wealth in America that that we have created this uh, you know and and I'm but Brian I, Brian nobody ripped out all the drinking fountains
1: though I mean they're drinking know, fountains are I every, know and there are, there are more drinking fountains today than there were 20, 30 years ago that's okay? correct
2: that's correct but so, but here's here's the thing so water's not a like convenience let me finish let me finish, let me finish my point though. let me finish my point because it's not the convenience if it was just the convenience then then um, uh, Starbucks would not be charging anywhere from $0.99 cents to a cup of coffee to $6 for a cup of coffee. Starbucks allows you to choose your own level of artificial scarcity for something. You could get just a basic plain old black coffee for $0.99. Cents. You just got to get the smallest of everything. But you've got more fancy words that end an eye, and the more fancy words you end to it, you know, you get a more fancy coffee and again, all this is artificial artificial constraint well, well, because well, Brian,
1: but again, you're talking about brand monopolies there though okay, water fountains didn't go away nobody got rid of water fountains, water fountains are everywhere people, as we have more stupid money to spend on things, we then decide I will buy bottled water, okay I'm not going to go to the pump and I'm not going to do it because I have so much extra income to pay for this thing I will do that, okay, we talk about coffee, you know, you know Starbucks coffee you, know, you can get cheap coffee, you can break it at home the price of doing it for yourself, coffee beans per cup of coffee has gone down it's gotten cheaper but people have decided they're going to spend extra amounts of com- you know money on that brand and i absolutely believe that but, but, but they're just going to you going to understand,
2: th- understand like like the coffee is no less available it is an artificial not Starbucks
1: co- but you're talking about Starbucks coffee you, you again you're you you went you talk about bottled no, water but we we understand that no, 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 water No but, but is i'm more saying a-
2: when you walk into Starbucks you could buy Starbucks coffee for 99 cents and you could buy Starbucks coffee for $6.99 and what you do is you choose whatever price you're comfortable with, with more BS labels attached to it. That is a case of I mean, artificial constraint. Well,
0: there, there, are there are differences. I mean, you get larger coffee, you get uh, you know certain caramels or creams and stuff like that. I mean, it is, you know, it is. It's more than just saying I like this word. Uh, You know, there is differences to the product, if superficial to some.
2: I would have agreed. I totally hear where you're coming from. And I would have said the exact same thing five years ago before I read as many books on marketing and especially the success of Starbucks as I have. But now I'm convinced that it's a case where it's like people identify themselves as being of a certain class oh, well, and they yeah, don't but, mind spending a certain amount of money for a certain Yeah, but Brian, but again, thing. but
1: again, and again, but that's, that underscores, again, I I, I think we're, there's an intersection where we agree. My, the, 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 base point I was trying to make though, is when we talk about scarcity, There is no scarcity in water. There is more of it. But because it's so cheap and plentiful and whatever, people who want to sell things have to invent marketing and reasons to get you to buy the bottled water or sell you on the convenience. Starbucks Starbucks is a company that tries to, you know, coffee, if we follow the price of coffee, the historical price of coffee relative to income, It is a steady drop. It's a steady drop from, you know, the year 1911 to now when, you know, you go, it was ridiculously cheap back then, but people made $2 a month in salary. And so if you follow the price of coffee, you look over time, it keeps dropping and dropping and dropping. But the way you, you know, but again, like wine and other things, you know, if you ask me what's going to be in the future, you're going to have, you're going to have, you know, places and I think organic's gonna mean, you know, is gonna mean what it really means right now, less safe, but it's gonna be considered wild or original. And you're going to have coffee shops where people are gonna have these fancy coffee beans that were grown on hillsides and these pristine environments and people are gonna, you know, savor it because they like to spend their extra income on this aesthetic value. That's gonna be that's absolutely going to happen. You're gonna have things like coffee and wine. People are gonna want to shop at Whole Foods Markets, even though you could have things produced that are exactly the same, you know, by machinery. People are going to want to spend their money on the thing that they perceive to be, you know, artful or have some sort of well, and, value. And I'm glad
2: you said perceived to be because they're yeah. entirely paying for the perception of it, not not for the actuality of it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, I totally I, I totally agree. Well, with that I, point. I actually think that I like Starbucks coffee black and not a caramel macchiato, which is four dollars more and sucks. So, it's too goddamn sweet. So, in
1: my, my answer to the question about that, is like, I, I think that, you know, the price of a car, the price of a car relative to income has consistently dropped. And people go, well, why do I pay more for car payments? Because, well, we try to buy prestige and we buy more expensive cars. But if you look at, the, if you go walk into a car lot and you buy the cheapest Hyundai or cheapest Kia, which is a really well built car, if you compare it to what was built 10 or 20 or 40 years ago, actually, you'll spend not a lot of money relative to your income compared to what you would have spent 20 or 30 years ago. though those prices keep falling. So we see that obviously in electronics, but we see that in manufactured goods, and there's this constant race towards commodity pricing on stuff, and that's where things like you mentioned, though, the Starbucks brands and stuff like that are going to be of increased value. So, an agreement?
2: Well, I mean, y- yes and no. It's, it's, I, when I hear you say everything's going to become cheap and eventually free, I, I instantly no, stand I never up and say— free.
1: I, never, I never said free. I never said free. I think that brands are going to have a value or a price. I but that's just think it. That.
2: Is Eventually, it's only going to be brands. Eventually, everything's going to be essentially free, but it'll be the brands that people will invent superiority to things so that they can pay more so you could be cooler than yeah, but the but other like,
1: guy. I don't, I don't buy bottled water.
2: I well, mean, I, I, I don't— This isn't about you and your bottled water. This but, I mean, is I, about,
1: know, I, I know a lot of people that don't buy bottled water. I'm okay. drinking
0: bottled water right yeah, now. It's uh, uh, actually not even a joke. Uh, uh, yeah, look, I
2: mean— I mean, it, it, it was three bucks. I mean, you cannot make the case to me that bottled water is going to go away because, in fact, what no, happens I, I is, is better bottled br- water. No, Brian, go.
1: I'm saying you can't make the case to me that water fountains are going to go away. That's what I'm trying to say you can't make the case to me that all of a sudden— you know, I'm not going to have a water tap in my house. That's my
2: point. Okay, because the, there's that
1: choice. Choice. Ones... You're, you're telling. You're saying that choice is going to get diminished. I say choice no. is going to increase.
2: No, see, you're so not listening. Uh, the best representation <laughs> of this is Neil Stevenson's "The Diamond Age," where only yeah. the ghettoist of the ghetto. First of all, anyone can eat anything they want. They all have free food synthesizers. Anyone right. can have all of their basic amenities taken care of, but only the ghettoist of the ghetto actually do that. Anyone who's got any kind of money will become a Vicky, of, you know, somebody who lives in a fanciful Victorian era type setup or, you know, some kind of technological setup. Or there's all these different people who live in different epochs because they can. It's this world of wretched excess where anyone could do anything they want. Uh, and yes, there's freaking water fountains everywhere and everybody hates them. They That is the way it's going to be. Everybody's going to be like, oh, you're not going to eat from that water fountain, are you? Like, you know, that food synthesizer oh, Brian, that's publicly available in yeah, any Okay,
1: trash. but Brian, okay, Brian, okay, so there weren't a point in agreement. Where, and so what you're saying is that there isn't scarcity of the basics, okay? What's going to be, what people are going to do when the basics are free or virtually cost nothing, everybody's going to want the Louis Vuitton and want that. I don't dispute that at all. And But that's different saying that everybody's going to want the Louis Vuitton and all that. And saying that everybody's gonna have, you know, we're only gonna have bottled water is not the, is, is, no. when you say only okay. bottled water. What, that implies they're said, getting rid of what water. I gonna- was, what I said
2: was, what I tried to say was that artificial scarcity will rule the day and the only reason that everybody will want Louis Vuitton is because they will only make 10,000 units available right, right, right. Sure, even though sure, they can sure. easily make infinite units available
1: i uh, understand but you know we we need we we need to parse when we say artificial scarcity because in some you know there are with a monopoly when you own a brand that's one thing but when you say milk it means all of the milk producers are going to co you know get together and say we're going to you know basically say there's only this much on the market and all that so that's, fortunately
2: i didn't say any of that that was all something you
1: implied well, you—I mentioned the water fountains. You seem not to like that idea.
2: I didn't like it. Roll back it was, the tape. I—I <laughs> I didn't like it because it was off topic and not what I was trying to say at all.
1: Well, but it, it came back to when we're talking about having things. I'm saying things would be more plentiful, and you're saying they're not. And I'm like, well, you know, what's, I, what's I, not again be more
2: plentiful? not what I said. I right. never, never said things would be less right. plentiful. I said that artificial scarcity will rule the day.
1: Okay. And again, it might, might be, you know, how, how you perceive what that rule means and what that's going to be. And I, and I tried to make my point early on. I never, never disputed the idea that brands and things like that are going to have, or that's, I, 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 I hardly believe that. I absolutely believe that. But there's, there's, you know, obviously in in the way it was articulated, as I understood it, it seemed like you were very, very dismissive of the idea that we would still have things like Free water and stuff that we would be somehow compelled to buy the bottled water. What I'm dismissive of
2: is the idea that we will all have whatever we want, whatever it is, we will all have you know, our needs. No, I taken. don't
0: believe that. No, I think so. So, you, so, so, you, Brian, you're saying that we will always be wanting for something. Just the difference is over time, it will be from what we physically need to live to what we want because we've set up these barriers and we need to want for something. So even when we physically don't need to want for anything, we're going to need to want for something. Correct.
2: I I believe that we are all built to eternally try to level up and when we don't get that in real life, once we have everything taken care of for our basics, for example, we see it right now. Everybody lives at a very rich level by 1970s standards. But everybody, we don't want to live-
1: But Brian, everybody that we know in the Western world, my, yeah. I guess my point's trying to say is there's a lot of scarcity issues in the rest of the world that, that it would be a radical change to it. You know, people in Africa, people in other parts of— you know, the world would very, very much love to be worried about buying bottled water and Louis Vuitton bags and stuff like that. But because of their economic it's systems and the structure, bag. they have these scarcity issues. They have actual scarcity issues of what's available, not because there's not enough stuff in the world, but because their system is not there. And my point is that you're gonna get to that point and I agree absolutely the the diamond age point where you know, the thing that everybody, everybody the, is the, the lower level comes up and it has been coming up, then they're going to want the more expensive items and things like that. And and I love that idea. I love that idea. That's the world I want to live in where some kid in, you know, the middle of the Sahara doesn't worry about getting, you know, malaria in the middle of night and dying because he doesn't have a, malari- you know, a mosquito net because nobody in his family has the six bucks that it takes to buy one. And that's the kind of thing when I think about getting rid of kinds of scarcity, that's the kind of scarcity that comes to my mind immediately is, Solving those sort of those basic sort of human needs. And then, you know, if, if then the, the worry is, do I have the most fashionable clothing or whatever? That's a happy problem.
2: Uh, and I guarantee you it will rule the day when the singularity comes.
0: Okay. All right. Are, are, are you just angling so you have a catchphrase? Yes. Rule, rule, the the day.
2: Day. <laughs> rule the day. Rule
0: the day. Brian Brushwood, rule the day.
2: So, Arthur.
1: <laughs> Arthur, in answer to your question, I would say that Brian and I are are in very, very much violent agreement that there is going to be an intense, intense demand for brands. No matter about the ability to what you can manufacture, no matter the fact that You know, you could produce cars and other sort of things, consumables very, very inexpensively. We're going to want things with Apple logos on them. We're going to want things that are fashionable. We're going to want to go to Starbucks.
2: That's a really good point because we will have everything we need, even more than we do now. Like right now here in the Western Mm -hmm. world, we really have most of our most basic bases covered. But we want so much more, and soon the whole world will be that way. The moment we get all of our needs covered, we will instantly want more and better, and there will be artificial resources. Okay, yes,
0: <laughs> and it will uh, rule the gay, uh, as we've all agreed. But um, can I just, real quick, and this is a much, much bigger question than uh, you know. I think I, I intended to be, but is that necessarily bad?
2: No, I think it's great. I think it's what we're built to do, because once we've already... We were built genetically to kill things and drag it home and eat them and feed our families and achieve more and kick a lot of ass. And once we reach a level as a society where technologically we can all live on anything, you know, we, we just have the food processors give our stuff. It's important that we simulate those things that we can't do in real life.
1: Or, I mean, find ways to do them in real life, you know,
0: like getting off the planet.
1: Yeah. Or, or, you know, if you want to, you know, if you want to go conquering out conquering death, you could either have your wonderful simulation of going out and hunting or you know, turn Yellowstone Park into a place where you could actually go hunt and feel the risk and feel the vicarious thrill of doing that. So
2: I guess that not? would be uh, in my imagination. I'm picturing a future of uh, overpopulation to where only the super rich could do that. But I guess you could make it a super rich activity. Yeah, but we also
1: know, I mean, we also know the biggest problem facing population this century is going to be underpopulation.
2: And that's true. That is true. Can can we talk about that? Because question, do you think most people believe that we are still on track for overpopulation? Yes. 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 Why? Why?
1: because people have been scared by the ideas of scarcity like you were doing (laughs) um because the idea of of scarcity is a a very very ingrained idea and, and we're still trying to wrestle with the idea of that more is better especially more people more people equals more ideas and ideas are better cuz you figure out how to use resources better and there has been you know just a constant you know the 70s and the 80s was overpopulation overpopulation there was you know people who are now advising our president you know were writing frightening sci-fi paper that weren't science fiction but were science you know recommendations about what we're going to do when we have this overpopulation problem and
2: about the mass famines and the disasters yeah, yeah, exactly. and all that stuff
0: So what was was that book? The Population Bomb? Population Bomb by Paul Ehrlich. Paul Ehrlich,
2: yeah. Uh, Yeah, and and I mean, maybe it was, maybe, maybe, I don't know. Uh, It was a weird time in the 60s. You had the full-on Cold War. You had uh, this population explosion before the Green Revolution, and nobody knew Mm -hmm. how they they were going to solve this problem. It was, in many ways, a terrifying time of change. And I can understand why everyone would have thought that we're all gonna over- overpopulate. In fact, could could we ask everyone to please tweet at Weird Things Weird Things com and tell us whether or not until this moment you believed that, uh, and and in fact, you you may still before, believe
0: before your minds were surely changed but, by our clarion logic. But well, I mean, I,
2: <laughs> that's about to drop on you because Andrew May knows this business, all right. But 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 at this moment, did you believe that we are on track for massive overpopulation here on planet Earth? Because talk talk a little bit more about the underpopulation bomb.
1: Well, the the thing that's happened, and it used to be that there was when countries became more developed. They had fewer children, and there are a lot of explanations for why they why that would happen. When child mortality dropped, women decided they didn't need to have five or six kids because guess what, one of them would reach adulthood. That's one explanation. As people moved from economies that were less agrarian focused and more towards working in cities, you didn't need as many kids to work around farms. There's a lot of explanations for it. Maybe part of them, part of one, all of them is true. But the trend has been in developed countries, countries that has gotten better, that the population has started to, starts to decline at a certain point. One of the problems Japan is facing: Japan has the older population is getting bigger; fewer young people are getting married and having kids. There's a big concern in Japan about who's going to take care of them as they get older, and this is spreading to other places. Russia, I think, is at negative the t- population growth. Parts of Europe: the only thing driving population is immigration from North Africa, and United States. You know, we've, we 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 are we start we we slowed down a bit, but. Thankfully, to due to immigration, where population is is still improving. But if you look at this, what's happening globally? Even countries that haven't had the dramatic changes in the economy, their populations have started to slow down. And it's some people thought, oh, it's because of AIDS in Africa. But not even for that. If you just just in general, world populations are starting to decline. And I think it's partially due to the spread of popular culture, and I think lowering rates of infant mortality. But anyway. We look at by about 2050, the population is going to reach about 10 billion people, and it looks like it's going to level off from there. Well, and and it it
2: depends. Uh, The U.N. has three different projections. The high projection is that come 2100, right? So what, 90 years from now, uh, we'll be at 14 million or 14. Yeah, 14 billion. Sorry. Uh, The medium projection is come 2100, we'll be at 9 billion. And the low projection, get this, is that we'll be at below Almost five and a half billion. Like, like I remember it being 1986 or so and finding out that there was a 5 billion people and it was going to hit 6 billion pretty soon. That's amazing to me that we're, yeah. that we're going to see the population decline in our lifetimes. Well, we're not, yeah, and, but and for those yeah. views, we may. It's, idiots like me. What are we at now? We, right now we're at 6.7 billion. I yeah. Believe?
1: Almost yeah.
0: 7 yeah. 6.9. Yeah. yeah. So we're, we're, we're creeping up on seven and that, you know, what I assume is a, a very, you know, not doomsday scenario, but a grim scenario is that we will lose off that number in 90 years.
2: Well, and, and it depends on who you ask, because a lot of these uh, green activists believe that that the only way, for example, we, we talked about the um, uh, those giant stones outside of Atlanta that say thou shalt not keep the population above 100 million worldwide. Or, <laughs> yes, I, I don't know if that's the right number or not.
0: Well, I mean, that's yeah.
2: But but it's like uh, but it's like depending on who you ask, what kind of society do you want? Do you want a society where actually you have subsistence farmers and you have hunter gatherers uh, spread out and, and, you know, dying of diseases and doing their best to, you know, eat woolly mammoths or whatever uh, with with spears? Or do you want um, more people? I guess it goes back to that Julian Simon thing where more of all the resources on Earth, human ingenuity is the greatest resource for sure
1: I I think that I've, I've seen looking at those UN projections and you know the low- end thing one of the things they, they fail to sort of appreciate is how you know human lifespans keep improving and improving and we keep living longer even singularity people, bro well and that's a thing you hit a point and then it gets all crazy and haywire
2: and they don't have robots on this chart no
1: they don't They should man should add them in there but they're virtual they live inside of you know computers so they don't count don't tell them I told them that though
0: yeah th- uh, there was Sorry, go ahead, Andrew. Yeah, i to say
1: that and the, the thing that's that's scary to a lot of people when you start talking about national health care, the idea that you when we make everybody a promise that the government will pay for you into old age, and when you look at these statistics and you realize that as fewer young people are being born, as you're having fewer children and people get older, it's and reach retirement, that you know, we don't there is you know, these things are paid for by people. In the present, you know, the money you pay in doesn't go into some actual real piggy bank or whatever, no matter what they tell you. If it does, <laughs> it's because they're buying government bonds, which is just a promise that we're going to collect as much taxes to pay for this later on. And regardless of whether you, what you feel about this, about, you know, how these things should be provided for, but if you think that, you know, it becomes the responsibility of, of government to do that, and that basically means it's dep- dependent upon taxing, as you get more old people who aren't working and fewer young people working, where does the money come from? You know, where does this thing, and that that's what's frightening to a number of people. You know, we have a lot of friends who, who write in the libertarian space for like Reason.com and places like that. And when they start talking about it, if you look at how you have an aging population that gets past retirement age and isn't putting money into it, and when you start talking about the average lifespan right now is – Seventy eight years, eighty years, like eighty years in the United States, I think, for women. And you look at where was what was the average lifespan back when Social Security was first created?
2: Uh okay. I, I mean it was it was well younger than, than sixty five.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, as people lived longer and collected longer, You know, they paid into it all their life. Fine. I have no problem with that. But when you start talking about health services and things like that, when you talk about it's realistic, it is a realistic idea to talk about average ages being 100 years old and not a decrepit 100. Okay, you have 75 and 80 year old people who are in much better shape than they were. They would have been historically because of. Better medicines, better things like hip replacements, knee replacements, and things that control inflammation, which is just a big problem as you get older. And you think about the problems that poses. Where where does the money come from?
2: Uh, and I'll tell you, that's actually the most encouraging thing because the idea of just living longer and spending, you know, a full like I think of how old, what, what am mid thirties now, right? So mm-hmm. it's like I imagine, let's say, let's say you know I get a bad hip somewhere around sixty eight, and then spend. 36 years and die at 105 or whatever, right? It's mm-hmm. like, it's it's amazing to me to consider the entire duration of my life living as, uh, you know, with with a poor quality of life, waiting for, you know, for the Wheel of Fortune to come on at 6 p.m. or whatever. With, <laughs> Matt with, Rock! With Robo <laughs> Sajak on there, you know? I mean, it's like, um, uh, I don't know, it really encourages me to hear how the quality of life and the health has improved of, of the elderly over oh, yeah. and, what I and, thought of.
1: And Brian, you touched upon a very good point there, and that that is a thing that scares a lot of people. When you start talking about people, would you like to live forever? With a, you know, they they often think of very very old people who have trouble with mobility and and that, and that is a scary thought. But when you talk about being able to live, you know, in a much healthier body, which yes, we're you know, how healthy is a fifty year old today compared to thirty or forty years ago? If you don't drink excessively, you don't smoke a 50 year old today can be in much better shape than somebody was earlier. And, and Justin could probably tell us, you know, you know, how many pro athletes are functioning today that wouldn't have 20 years ago.
0: Oh, in terms of medical science, I mean, like, you know, just, uh, we've seen a a massive shift, uh, even in the last year and a half in terms of, uh, ever you know, since Brett Favre
2: and, was replaced with an Android.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, we've seen, uh, a, a totally different look at how we handle concussions and, uh, You know what brain health means long term because we've we've seen uh, you know over the last thirty years people who when sports really really exploded in the fifties and sixties now are just kind of completely decrepit uh, and and you know have really 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 shown signs of how you know playing this violent game at such a young age can affect the rest of their lives. So uh, I think the the generation of athletes that are playing now will live far better lives past now because of our breakthroughs in medical science and more specifically how we're treating it now at the point of impact.
1: Well, you look at, look at knee surgery. Yeah. And, and you have need for baseball players. You'll have people who get shoulder and elbow surgery, which was sort of the last ditch effort to maybe try to salvage your career. And you have guys coming back from that with faster throws than they had before.
0: Yeah. Or, you know, uh, the microfracture knee surgery specifically is kind of revolutionized. Uh, sports like basketball, where I mean, before it would be, I mean, uh, Amari Stoudemire who now plays for the Knicks. He basically would have had his career ended within the first two years of him playing if it weren't for micro-fractured knee surgery, which was still relatively new, uh, at least uh, on the level for, for someone like him. And he came back and he's had a fantastic career and has been reasonably, uh, you know, injury-free, considering the fact that his games played after that should have been zero. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'll tell you there was there was a moment while uh, me and Andrew were driving through uh, Texas, specifically Dallas, on the last lecture tour, and uh, I was I, I was thinking specifically about this kind of uh, thing where you know the overpopulation. There's a Kurt Vonnegut story which I just I looked up the name of called uh, the Big Trip Up Yonder. I believe it's in the compilation Welcome to the Monkey House, and uh, it's about in in the year. 2185. The main character is Gramps Ford, who's 172 years old, which means he would be born two years from now.
2: Wow.
0: <laughs> um, and it's about this dystopian future where overpopulation and overcrowding has crippled the earth and that families are now forced to live in, like, you have, like, 72 people living in a three-bedroom apartment or something. What? It's it's, it's this ridiculous where, uh you know, the, the short story is about the hierarchy of the apartment and how the young kids are sleeping in the, you know, out like, like where the door is and that, you know, Gramps Ford is living in the bed because you decide when you die. And, and it, it, it's, it's a reasonably good story. And if I remember correctly, there's a there's a twist ending to it. But as I was driving through Texas with Andrew and I'm just looking at, you know, these like very nice developments that were obviously built within the last five years. The only thought I had was like, man, Kurt Vonnegut's full of butts. <laughs> like there's, there's no way that's happening. You know, we have, we have way, way more land than I think that we ever really took the uh, you know, credit for. And, and, you know, if, if we look at now, you know, when we have people that are looking at seasteading, you know, uh, for, for, you know, cause they want to live a better, uh you know, uh, they, they have disagreements with how we fundamentally run things in society or government that we want to go out. To live in in you know our own kind of crudely terraformed sea areas, um, you know I I just think we're 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 not we're we're not going to get in that position you know we're we're not going to be put in a position where we're living seventy two to a three bedroom apartment we're just going to find a better way to live
1: and I you know and a, and, a, and a point to that too is you know Brian I mean you know Brian lives in what would be considered you know by in in, in many places a mansion you know it's a big big huge house it's got a lot of rooms it's really nice. And, you know,
0: Brian. What we're trying to say is Rob Brian. Bro, rob
1: God, Brian. You know,
2: please don't do this. Yeah. This Brian, is a terrible yeah, but, segment.
1: But like, I mean, Brian. <laughs> Brian, when you when you you know you, you got the house. It's a nice house. I mean, in your mind, were you thinking like, oh, you know, this is this is where people who sit in their backyards in front of pools sipping lemonade while butlers serve them?
2: Or uh, are you oh, thinking- totally, totally. I mean, I did. I mean, you you don't understand. We <laughs> we, we spent a decade. Uh, we lived in a 900 square foot half of a duplex for six years. Then we lived in a 1400 square foot house for six more years. And then we found ourselves in a 1400 square foot house with, with me and Bonnie, two kids and two dogs and me trying to run a podcast from the the living room and we realized that we just needed physically more space which is why we moved way out of town which is like I'm out there it's so undeveloped out here it's 20 minutes drive to anything out here but when you move way out you get more space and it becomes ridiculously cheap and there's and and you nailed it man there's so much undeveloped land in it. the the world is so hugely big you cannot comprehend it
1: what what would your what would your I mean, is your
2: is your you know, grandfather still around? Uh, br- 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 no, okay. no. All well, my grand—well, I mean, my my not biological, but yeah, I do okay, have. Like, a, I, I, do I have mean, a grandfather. I mean, imagine a great-grandparent,
1: a great-grandparent coming sure. into your house
2: and seeing how you lived. Sure. Oh, oh my gosh. Well, well we already saw that Bonnie's grandmother was—I uh I think 98 when she passed away. And like she saw, like she still was washing out Ziploc baggies to reuse them and stuff. People who have seen the scarcity associated with the Great Depression, like uh, nothing puts your life in perspective, like one of our elders explaining. Uh, how much, and, and when you ask them, you know, we, we sit here on our high horses talking about our green technology and, and how bad industrialization is. But meanwhile, talk to somebody who lived in the Depression oh, yeah. and ask how fun it was to, to, to jar stuff, you know, to, to put stuff in, <laughs> to can everything. You know, I mean, it's like that's it's we are so spoiled. We are so spoiled.
1: We we three well, personally. Yeah.
0: yeah you oh, and no, me and just as you so spoiled. and you listening. You are spoiled, sir. <laughs> uh and and you know, I'll tell you what, to all to all uh all all credit to uh you know Mr Mr. Vonnegut, Zinu, rests his soul. Uh I think his personal perspective was not an unreasonable one for somebody who probably didn't get out of Manhattan much. Yes. <laughs> yes. Listen, Andrew's got a book out. Do you want to independently publish stories? You know, I'll tell you what, here's what you do. Go to indieisle.com. It's another way that you can make sure that you get your independent publishing out to the people who want to read it. Go to I-N-D-I-E-A-I-S-L-E.com. Sign up, it's free. What did it hurt? IndiIle.com.
1: All right, who wants to go first? Uh,
0: you All know right. what, I'll go, I'll go, I'll, I'll go. go.
1: Oh, wait, no, actually, no. uh... I don't. I'll go. I can go. All right, you'll go.
0: Alright. Uh, I'll tell you what, uh, staying on the theme, um, if uh, like many, many, many things, especially reading that I've done in my life, uh, I started reading Kurt Vonnegut to impress a girl, and it was turn, turned out very, very good, because he uh, became one <laughs> of my favorite authors, but uh, the book that got me in to Kurt Vonnegut's writing was, like many sci-fi authors, or, or others who have written in sci-fi, um, was a short story compilation, and that particular one was "Welcome to the Monkey House," which has the story that I mentioned before, and more specifically, my favorite short story ever in sci-fi, which is "Harrison Bergeron." And uh, I, I very highly recommend uh, checking out that book in in specific. And Vonnegut, as a as a writer, is uh, you know not only stylistically very very interesting, but also like many of the great uh, you know sci-fi writings that that I've read, and, and obviously Brian and Andrew are far more well-versed on is, you know, he, he melds the big idea with character so well and doesn't let either consume the other. Cool.
1: All right. I'll go ahead with my pick. I'm going to dumb it down a bit, but, uh, you ever, ever have like a movie you saw as a kid and maybe you caught bits and pieces of it periodically throughout the years. And so you kind of, in your mind, you're like, Oh, you remember it, but then you sit down and you watch it and you're like, Oh my God, I, I haven't watched this in forever. I don't remember it. And you, you, and scenes kind of feel new to you because it's been so long. Mm-hmm. Yes. I had that experience, and I'm, I'm embarrassed. I am profoundly embarrassed, and I, uh, I'm going to admit it right now in front of everybody. Uh, saw this movie in the theater when I was a kid, and I saw a little bit of it. I thought I remembered seeing parts of it recently on TV, and I think I did, but I'll, probably less than I realized because I just sat down to watch the whole thing all the way through and loved it, and
2: I'm talking about Big Trouble in Little China. Wait, you're saying you loved it and it turns out to be bad or you thought it was dumb and it turned out to be awesome? Well, I'm saying that I always liked the movie.
1: I mean, I always remember I, my memory of having seen it as a kid was so f- strong that for some reason I thought it was a movie that I'd seen sometime in the last 20 years. And I realized I hadn't. I hadn't watched it all the way through probably since I was a kid. Oh my gosh! And and I you know I caught little bits and pieces of it and I'm like yeah I, I like this movie and I sat down the other night to watch the movie in its entirety, you know from be, you know beginning to end and just had a blast. Love the movie. You know, it's one of my favorite John Carpenter movies. I mean I love, I love Escape from New York because that's like that's very gritty. I love Big Trouble in Little China because it's fun. And my problem with Escape from L.A. is he tried to do it sucks. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Well, I'll Sorry, tell
0: you, you what, <coughs> Andrew. Wait, no, no, Andrew, what, what was it? Were you, were you going to say like, the legitimate critique? I would As say that. No, well,
1: I say that with, with you know, yeah, I think that in Big Trouble, Little China, Big Trouble, Little China, he hit what he's trying to do really well. It was kind of his homage to the adventure Indiana Jones kind of movie. And I absolutely loved it.
2: Well, I'll tell you <laughs> what, Andrew. You answer me this. When some wild eyed eight foot tall maniac grabs your neck, taps the back of your favorite head up against the bathroom wall, and he looks you crooked in the eye and asks if you paid your dues, you just stare that big sucker right back in the eye. And you remember what old Jack Burton says at a time like that. <laughs> Have you paid your dues, Jack? Yes, sir. The check is in the mail.
1: In the mail. <laughs> <laughs> this is the pork chop express telling you <laughs> what it is? Yeah. Uh, it is so full of just awesome, goofy fun. Um,
2: it's very, awesome. Very it's a great it, yeah. movie. So highly recommend it. Uh, well, we mentioned Neil Stephenson's The Diamond Age, which you totally should read if you haven't read it, because it is one of those unforgiving post-singularity <laughs> stories where you just got to fit. You spend the first third saying what, what? And then you understand the world. And then you spend the th- second third saying what, what to the plot. Um, but, before you do that, you should also read one of the, I think, uh, lesser appreciated Neil Stephenson books. I mean, early on, everyone knew him for Snow Crash, and Snow Crash is amazing. And most people who I talk to, and I tell them they should read Snow Crash, they say, oh, but it's so dated. Won't, it, won't its version of science fiction look silly? Number one, you will love it for all the things it got right. And number two, you will love it for all the things it got wrong. Uh, and uh, like I read it in the late '90s, and it was a fantastic science fiction. You know, it's it's a post-U.S. civilization world where individual, where like individual neighborhoods have be- become their own city states, and the U.S. currency is valueless. And franchises build their own currency, and and membership in Mr. Lee's Greater Hong Kong is something that you can, uh, you know, it's 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 a right that you apply for. Um, it's it's phenomenal and amazing, and it definitely stands up to the test of time, and especially listening to it again. Uh, I read it back in the late 90s. I've listened to it like maybe three times on audiobooks since then, and the more I listen to it, the more I realize that while it's trying objectively to describe a horrific world where there is no government and there is no law, in the weird way it appeals to my fantasies of while ugly and rough around the edges – how a completely anarcho-libertarian paradise could work, where everything is up, where the cops are up for negotiation, where the jails are up for negotiations, where there's choices in roads. You could do Versatran versus Road Corp or whatever. I mean, it's it's an amazing experience to see as ugly as this world is how simultaneously beautiful it is at the same time.
1: Brian, they call it Mexico. <laughs>
2: Only Mexico doesn't have all the sweet technology they describe. yeah, in the book. you know
1: I, I, I loved the book and and that is the kind of thing when I the pick of the Stevenson, the way he would sort of describe things and and one of the things that kind of the, the difference I, I I diverge with my libertarian brethren is that I'm not an anarchist and and partially because for me, having lived in some places that didn't have very, very strong governments or didn't have strong rule of law and everything was corruptly privatized, which meant that the poor really didn't get representation, didn't get protection under the law. Um, it was frightening, absolutely, absolutely frightening to see what that was. And, and you know, I, I know the arguments that, you know, the idealistic sort of arguments, but sometimes they kind of concern me just as sort of the socialist no, idealist I and, and I will
2: be the first to admit that I have a tendency to idealize things and to... Represent them as as I'd like to see in a perfect world, and I tend to stand up for principles that sound great sitting around a campfire, but might look a little different when you're in the middle of a diamond mind having your mom flogged in front of you.
1: Well, yeah, and and I think <laughs> and I think that's I think that's one of the things. For that, cash, yeah, I think that's cold what, yeah. hard cash. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things. And just to touch on that, that that sort of is a it is the interesting things about idealism, and sometimes where you you have people who seem to share the same ideals, but then you look at their you know the 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 world in which they think things would work and the way in which you think things work would be radically different and I don't know, I'll just leave it at that um absolutely love the book highly highly recommend it myself um and you know you can't beat a main character whose name is hero protagonist,
2: yes dude, <laughs> although he d de- you don't find out it's him until you know like the the third chapter until then he's the deliberator, yes, yes. So, ladies and gentlemen, there you go. Those are our picks.
1: This has been the Weird Things Podcast. And if you would like to listen to us in your pocket, take us with you anywhere you want, go to podcaster.com. That is P O D dot com. that's podcast with no E slash weird things again podcaster.com slash weird things and you can get our mobile player that works on iOS devices and your desktop which allows you to start and stop pause at any point pick up where you left off without having to download a thing until next time it's been weird
0: Taste of Andrew Maine's The Grendel's Shadow Even out at the water pump, she could hear her baby crying from inside. Afraid of the things she heard in the darkness, she pumped the handle faster so she could finish filling the bucket and hurry back. Living out there was difficult enough with her husband away, working downriver. The loneliness made it even worse. As she walked back to the house, she never heard the thing behind her, the color of night. It was invisible in the darkness as it stalked. It had been watching this one and the mewling child for several nights. Sometimes it heard two distinct cries after the lights went out. She was almost at the porch when she smelled something unusual. She felt the warm breath on her neck and then recognized the scent. It was the smell of dead things. Searing pain shot into her sides as she was lifted off the ground. Through an open window, she could see her child in the crib, still sobbing. Her body grew cold as she felt blood trickle down her dress and onto her arms. The light from the house became smaller as she was pulled into the dark. She tried to reach to her infant but was too weak. The sound of crying faded away as she passed out. When she opened her eyes again, it was still dark. The smell of death was in the air around her. Her hands felt sharp and broken things on the floor beneath her. She struggled to get up but couldn't. She touched her stomach. It was warm and moist from her own blood. Somewhere she could hear crying again. She reached her hands out toward it and noticed that this crying was different. Chapter One The capsule rattled and shook as the composite skin jerked around violently in the upper atmosphere. Inside, the two occupants strapped to aluminum seats jostled back and forth. The shorter of the two, dressed in an immaculately pressed safari gear, that looked like the costume for a play, seemed ill at ease and reached for another stick of relaxant gum. He envied the calm of the man sitting across from him, silently flipping through the pages of a hard copy manual on local fauna below, making notes, folding page corners. He could have been sitting on a porch chair in a cool summer breeze for all the expression on his weathered face. Frustrated by the man's cool manner, the shorter man shouted over the loud noise of the capsule's entry. Doesn't it bother you at all? Looking up from the manual, the man slid into a pocket and crossed his arms over his hunting rifle, which hadn't left his grasp since the trip began six days prior. It terrifies the hell out of me. He looked at the man in front of him and then at the 38 empty seats. This capsule's over 120 years old, one broken vent or if the balloon doesn't discharge, and we're incinerated in a second. The shorter man was surprised and infuriated by the response. Of course, just about any question posed to T.R. Westwood was likely to have that effect. You could do a better job of it, he shouted. Mr. Allen, I think you're doing an excellent job of that for the both of us. I'll let you handle the panic while I put my attention elsewhere, but feel free to tell your readers whatever you like. Allen made a mental note to embellish Westwood's calm in the story even more by adding details like calmly sipping black coffee and napping during the roughest part of the entry. Not that he had ever expected to read the article. He was sure the addition of his mythos would only irritate him further. Tall and lithe, with short cropped hair turning silver and a perpetual five o'clock shadow, Westwood had that outdoorsy look you saw on ranchers, and men's cigarette ads. Of course, with ten minutes of cosmetic surgery, anyone could have that look. Alan preferred his own natural stature, because it seemed less intimidating to people. Watching Westwood look at the flames flickering by the portal and absent-mindedly rolling a cigar in his fingers, he knew his height was a wasted effort on him. He half expected him to open up the porthole so he could light his cigar from the flames shooting up from the heat shield. He couldn't imagine anything intimidating the man. A series of lights located under the window near a row of empty seats began a countdown to when the drag balloon would deploy. Alan grasped the shoulder restraints and waited for the pop and ensuing jerk. From there, the automatics would take over and guide them into a landing within a 20-kilometer zone. You prefer a sea landing or a land one? Alan shouted to Westwood, more to distract himself from his fear. In some worlds, a sea landing is like ringing a dinner bell. That's how they discovered the Terra Whales on Danube. An expedition using a dropship was swallowed five minutes after splashdown. Lucky for them that landing rockets were able to give it some fatal indigestion. Alan already regretted the question. Westwood continued, The trouble with landing on dry land is that most of the places you want to go aren't near flat or open land. That means brush or forest. Lots of places you won't survive ten minutes before something eats or oozes over you. Alan was pretty sure the you in You Won't Survive meant him specifically. He was afraid to ask what being oozed meant. I don't suppose that we have any landing rockets? Alan asked, hopefully as he looked around the sparse interior of the capsule. Maybe they could throw empty seat cushions at it. Westwood shook his head. Nope. Thankfully we're landing in Lake Natal. It's a big lake, but they have a pretty good idea of what's in there and what can eat us. Pretty good, but you can never be too sure. Westwood gave Alan a grin that was half lighthearted and half menacing and made sure his bowie knife was at his side. You never did say what you prefer, land or sea. If it's up to me, I take the elevator. But the places that ask me to help out don't usually have those. This has been a reading from Andrew Maine's science fiction debut, *The Grendel's Shadow*, available now for 99 cents via ebook on Amazon's Kindle Store. Make sure to get it on your desktop, Kindle or any iOS device using the Kindle app, head on over to amzn.to slash grendelshadow, G-R-E-N-D-E-L-S-S-H-A-D-O-W. Also soon to be available on Apple's iBooks and Barnes & Noble's Nook store. Like a listener shout out or maybe sponsor
2: the podcast, email WeirdThingsMail at gmail.com. The same address where you can make a suggestion or write your own scenario.
0: WeirdThingsMail at gmail.com.